Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Thorpe is coming in, gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Australia have got it! Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. And welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our great friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today we're joined by one of Australia's most respected and renowned football identities. Craig Foster played for Clubber and Country over a 15-year career that took him around the world. A midfielder, he played 29 times for the Socceroos before becoming a permanent fixture in our lounge rooms as a newsreader and chief football analyst, often into the wee hours of the morning on SBS. But the passion he showed for the game has now also been channelled into human rights and his tireless work to secure the release of refugee footballer Hakeem Alarabi has brought him to the attention of a wider audience. Craig, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure always to speak to you guys. Can I be so bold as to call you Fozzie? It just feels right. <laughs> of course you can. It'd feel I, a bit I, odd otherwise. Yeah. Well, I feel like yeah. you would have got Fozzie more than you got Craig where you grew up. You had a country upbringing in yeah. Lismore, New South Wales. Yeah, that's true. Where, you know, a, a nickname's important, isn't it? You know, no one's known by their first name, certainly not in the country anyway, but it's a, a wonderful part of Australia. Many of your listeners would know about it. I think Lismore's probably a bit less known than its surrounds, uh, which includes uh, Ballina, Yamba, um, Byron Bay, um, Jigai, uh, Nimbin, Bangalore. You know, it's just a really extraordinary part of the country. So it was, it was lovely to um, you know, spend the first 15 years there. Oh, beautiful part of the world. And Lennox had as well. You would have spent a bit of time at Lennox, you, yeah. Yeah, your father, Kevin, was a mechanic, I think, in Lismore. But he, he liked his fishing, didn't he? I, I just wanted to ask if you liked it as much as he did. <laughs> um, sadly for him, I didn't really. Um, oh, because I always found it a little bit boring. You know, I'm not... Patience is not one of my virtues. And... <laughs> You know, and he just loved having, we had, he had three sons and I was the middle one, but he loved having us out there, of course, you know, it was his real passion. He came off, uh, he came up through a um, dairy farm, actually, uh, up near Danoon, which is now all little beautiful hobby farms. But back in those days, it was a huge, big dairy farm. And, and 
uh, during those years, uh, going and catching fish in the local Richmond River or heading down to Ballina in the Richmond near the mouth, you know, brim and flathead and jewfish in particular, was important for their, um, you know, sustainability. You know, they needed it. Uh, so they were always a big fishing family and he's continued that on. And even in his 70s now, he still fish probably four days a week. So <laughs> thankfully for me and for my father, Kevin, uh, my elder and younger brothers loved it and were perfectly happy to sit with him for hours on end in the boat, in the tinny, and just wait for the bite. Uh, and occasionally he dragged me kicking, kicking and screaming along as well. You mentioned your brothers Paul and Stephen, and as you say, you're one of three sons to Kevin and Deanne Foster. Well, casting the fishing aside then, pardon the pun, Fozzie, what, what do you think yeah. you inherited from your father? Well, um, perhaps most of all, just a sense of uh, family and community. So Kevin was one of those people who would do anything for his family, and that's extended family and friends, but in particular his sons. You know, they we really were his life. So he's a very talented uh, athlete. He was a champion in the region, he was a champion tennis player, he was a fantastic opening batsman. Uh, he was a, a champion te- uh, table tennis player, which they used to play in the local hall out in Danoon when they were kids, when all the farm people would come together. Uh, and so he was very, very talented. And he was actually state champion sprinter as well at school level. Uh, I think 110 and 220 yards it was in those times. But he gave all of that up. Um, because his young sons were starting to play sport reasonably seriously. And so he would just ferry us all around the place and miss all of his cricket and miss all of his representative tennis and so on. And that was a really important lesson for me, not just about family, but about giving and, and selflessness. And the other thing was just community. You know, he was the type of person that, you know, he would be the stalwart of all of these clubs. You know, that real sense of volunteerism, real sense of being contributing to the community was never just about him or us or his business. Uh, it was about, you know, he was he now is into orchids, you know, in his later life. So he's got three greenhouses up there and he wins prizes. He's incredibly proud of it. He wins all these prizes, the grand champion, you know, every second week. But, of course, he's the chairman of the local orchid society and he was the chairman or the president of the local cricket club and the fishing and, you know, and so he would help council. And and so it was that community and civic-mindedness that I really took away from him. If fishing wasn't your thing, I don't think the orchids would be your thing either, Foz. But no. y- y- you started at, as Ganalaba Soccer Club, wasn't it? The Mighty Hornets at four years mm-hmm. of age. What What took you there? How did you discover football? Well, only because my older brother started playing and he's about 18 months older. And so, um, you know, I, I'm sure I was on the sideline screaming and kicking um, and, uh, you know, throwing a tantrum saying, I want to follow him out there. We were always very close and and uh, we'd, we'd been already probably mucking around at home. So he went out to play and they said, OK, we better put a, a shirt on this little tyke as well, throw some boots on him and get him out there. And so I started in the first couple of years just playing in years two, you know, kind of playing a, a year or two up. Mm. And was your sporting upbringing similar to so many others in that there was the heated clashes with them in the backyard? Yeah, we used to get to fisticuffs all the time. 
uh, kicked the hell out of each other. We destroyed the whole backyard. We had a we had a reasonable size uh, backyard up there, with and it was you know half of it was uh, planted out in vegetables and so on. Still is, but um, and we had the the grape trellis, which was kind of rectangular uh, in in shape, and so that was perfect um, yeah. shape for goals. And of course, that used to get absolutely smashed, you know, every day. And, and the back fence got smashed every couple of years. We had to, um, we'd have to go out and fix it. And balls went into windows and all those types of things. And, and that was kind of a joy. That was, I guess, you know, a blessing that we had, you know, in the country in those times. We had space, we had energy, um, we had a, a high level of freedom. You know, we could just jump on our bikes and go. So we'd go and play basketball or we'd go play cricket. It's one of the beauties of growing up in country and regional areas, which I think, mm. you know, post-COVID-19, an increasing number of Australians are starting to discover. Yeah, you paint a great picture there. And as the years went on, you weren't scared to chase the dream, were you? You obviously debuted with Sydney, Croatia in 88. You moved to Victoria only a year later to play with Sunshine, uh, George Cross. And then there was even a stint overseas in Hong Kong in 1992. Yeah. Yeah, the football landscape was very different in those times. But you're right; I was I was probably in a bit of a hurry, and um, I wanted to go abroad and play. Um, but the NSL, as it was so called, was only six months of the year, basically. So mm. players were doing one of two things: they were either going abroad full time, in which case to do that and go to Europe, you know, you more or less had to be um, a soccerer already. And I was only in late teens, early twenties. Or what a lot were doing, and even a lot of socceroos at that time, um, was spending six months of the year or seven months of the year playing here in Australia and then taking the opportunity to play the rest of the year over in Asia. And so that meant that we could be full-time. Um, we considered ourselves as professionals, therefore, and we were able to you know, continue to try and build our game with a view towards you know, higher honours. So I went even over to play in Singapore, with a, a very well-known former soccer and uh, Victorian. He used to play for Preston Lions. His name was uh, Warren Spink. He was mm. a fabulous little uh, number nine for Australia in the National Soccer League. And we lived together over there and played for a few months came, and you'd come back and play again. And you'd vacillate between the two. And it was a wonderful experience. But, of course, for every player, my eyes were always on, you know, trying to play for the soccer and uh, and you know, and at the highest level that I possibly could. Well, just on the Socceroos, Foz, and you mentioned you're in a hurry. Well, you, rep- you were identified pretty early in the piece as well. You represented Australia at under-16 level and you, you reached the quarterfinals of the 1985 FIFA Under-16 World Championship in China. I mean, I can't imagine what you took away from a trip like that as a bright-eyed youngster. Yeah, it was a really interesting trip. It was a big culture shock for all of us, really, you know, walking out of Lismore. Uh, into Tianjin, China in 1985. Uh, and, you know, of course, we did the usual um, a tour guide um, and sightseeing. Yeah. You know, we went to the Great Wall and so on. And, you know, I was only 15, was one of the youngest in that group. It was the first, was the first under-16 World Cup. So FIFA had just at that time created a new youth tournament. They felt that they needed to go younger than under-20s and give players uh, a better international opportunity at a younger age. So we were the first 
uh, under 16 Australian team. Subsequently, and today, it's called the under 17. They changed the the age sometime later. But yeah, look, it was a, a wonderful experience. Um, you know, there, again, there were some great players that came in that group with us. Paul Trimboli comes to mind in particular. You know, who still is, I think, head of football or in a key role at Melbourne Victory. He was, you know, quite a legendary Socceroo and is aside from being a fantastic human being was just an absolutely marvellous player and I just remember from those days what a fabulous footballer he was. So we had a, a great tournament, but the nice thing out of it was we didn't know that at the end they selected a team of that tournament and somehow my name came out of the hat. Someone's pulled it out randomly, seemingly, and um, and that was nice. So, you know, I was able to finish the tournament with nice memories of you know, all of us having done well. We beat West Germany. We beat um, Argentina. Um, sadly, we went out of penalties in the quarterfinal to Guinea. In fact, I was one of the two who missed one of the penalties. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Next, Craig Foster takes his blossoming talents to the international stage with the Socceroos and on to England. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with former footballer, analyst and humanitarian Craig Foster. Well, Fozzie, in 1996, you make your Socceroos debut and I think it was a World Cup qualifier against New Zealand, was it not? What do you remember of the occasion or did it come earlier than that that year? A little bit earlier. We went to South Africa actually and we played against Ghana in Johannesburg and that was you know, it was great memories, that tour. It was a wonderful group, you know, um, all of whom are dear friends today. You know, after the Under-16 World Cup, I'd actually came back to play an exhibition game before then kind of, you know, hopefully going on to great glory. And I, I copped a pretty bad tackle. Um, I, was, I was still 15 at the time, which kind of destroyed my right knee. So it took me a long time to battle back, you know, and that was part of going to Asia and trying to rediscover... Um, you know, my um, not so much ambition, but just you know rhythm in the game and and being able to perform at the level that was going to you know make me an international. And it didn't come until basically ten years later after that injury. You know, when I was twenty six. Mm. So by that time, I had had a, a, a huge number of injuries. You know, I had screws in ankles and and knees had gone. <laughs> yeah. So I remember it very much as just continuing to battle on, you know, and just never, ever giving up. You know, that I had this dream of achieving what I wanted to achieve in the sport, similar to, you know, any other field of life, you know, and what it is that we set our mind on. And there were a huge amount of barriers that were kind of propped up and, uh, and I just kept going and going and going and going. So by the time I made that game against Ghana, I was with actually some of the friends who I'd played 10 years ago or 10 years before uh, with the under-16s, you know, including Trimmers, uh, Paul Trimboli, and we, we played in that game. So I remember it very well. And afterwards, after what, everything that I'd been through, I took that shirt, got everyone to sign, and I framed it for my parents because they'd done so much for all of us, not just me, but my two other brothers. And I, and I think it said, thanks for all the miles and all the smiles 
because they'd spent so many years driving us all around northern New South Wales, all three of us, yeah. you know, in representative teams and just making such a huge sacrifice. Really quite amazing. Oh, it's fantastic. What a gesture. And you would go on, of course, to earn 29 caps. You even captained the side and you scored nine goals. Your first goal for the national team, June 97, a 13-0 drubbing of the Solomon Islands. Now, having watched that game, Fozzie, I reckon you'd have been pretty disappointed if you hadn't got on the score sheet. Yeah. Yeah, well, thankfully, Australia is now in Asia. And so, you know, we don't have to compete in with the Pacific Islands because that's that's in both our interests, I think, um, you know, because those score lines aren't doing them any service and certainly not wasn't doing us any either. No one really felt great about it, although you did have people like me who, who would decide in those games, well, listen, you know, I've, I've, I've got a couple of games here. I need to start getting on the score sheet. In fact, I remember in one of those games... <laughs> Stevie Corica, who's now the coach of uh, mm. Sydney FC, of course, just, you know, uh, championship winning, is doing really great. Lovely guy, former teammate. And I remember in that game specifically, uh, you know, trying to score and him saying to me, listen, come on, man, you know, you've got to, you know, pass this one to me. I'm standing right in front, you know, and I was saying, Bimby, listen, buddy, <laughs> you know, mate, this is where you got to get your stats up, you know. So he... Um, he was right, but it, you know it was. Um, you know there were there were games there where Australia, were, you know, I think they scored over thirty goals or something against American Samoa. And today it's very different. Today, thankfully, Australia's mm. within the Asian Football Confederation, which means you know every game is really challenging, and that's to the benefit of all, everyone. Yeah, well, pre-Asia, as you're about to find out this year, five months later in 97, you went from one extreme to the other because things are about to get a lot more difficult. And it obviously came down to that two-leg playoff under the old World Cup qualification system against Iran, of course, for a seat at the table at France 98. Now, it finishes 1-1 in Tehran in front of, they say 128,000 people were at the Azadi Stadium, Fozzie, and it was only supposed to hold 100,000. What was that experience like to play in front of that many people? Uh, it was shrill in the sense that it was the only game I ever played in where you couldn't scream to your own teammate. And that makes playing very difficult because, you know, as everyone who plays the game or any other, um, certainly ball sport and team sport would know, you know, communication is, you know, 90% of it. You know, this guy's here, that guy's doing well, you need to do that better, keep, keep an eye out for this, come on, guys. And I remember being almost face-to-face with teammates in that game and just yelling at the top of our lungs, and you couldn't hear because 128,000 people were just whistling, just particularly when we got the ball, um, and almost right throughout... The, the entire game. It was a very surreal experience. So it was almost like playing in isolation within a team. And so it was a very difficult game. And at home, of course, most teams um, are stronger, particularly in Asia, and, you know, very partisan, you know, hugely uh, passionate uh, Iranian football crowd at home. And Iranians just absolutely love football. It's a wonderful football nation. Uh, they uh, were really giving it to the Aussies. And so it was a difficult game. And what I remember most of all was the performance of young Harry Kuehl. I think mm. by that time he was probably 19. And I'd been, so we're talking 97, I'd been in there for a year. He came in, I think he played his first cap at 17. So I think he predated me. 
but he was still a kid, very much a kid. He used to sit in his room and play PlayStation, and you know, <laughs> he was just a very quiet kid. You know, he was he was a part of the group, but a little bit on the periphery. You know, everyone knew he was an immense talent, but he was just a lovely kid, but you know, terribly quiet. And but as soon as he got on the field, he just exploded. It was just this different person. You know, and I remember in that game the difficulty of trying to perform it at the highest level for the majority of us. And I remember Harry Kuehl just putting on a performance that was Kuehl-esque is one reason why, you know, uh, I consider him just an incredible performer for Australia. And I've often said that every time Harry was called upon, every time he was needed, he was there. You know, Timmy's obviously the other one. But, you know, at a really young age, extraordinary. And, of course, it was Harry who scored in that game. It was a 1-1. Uh, and he scored at home as well. You know, every time he was needed to step up, didn't matter what the situation was, whether in Tehran or the MCG, you knew, we knew that Harry Kuehl was just going to approach it like any other game and, and be the superstar he was. It was really uh, brilliant to see. Yeah, we talk about the big crowd, but when Harry scored that opener, there might as well, the stands might as well have been empty. It was an in- incredible silence. Um a week later, November 29 at the MCG, I mean, this is a night that will live forever in the minds of those who were there or even watching from home, Fozzie. You're obviously 2-0 up, 3-1 on aggregate. Early in the second half, really, Ovidmar scores, gives you that score on. What happened next was just inconceivable. I can't imagine how many times you've discussed this or recounted this over the journey. How do you look back on what happened next? Well, I try not to, but, uh, you know, in, in recent years, people kind of want to discuss it, but we didn't talk about it much for a long time. I've never watched the game again, and I'll, I'm sure I never will. Um, we, we, There's no way in the world that we wouldn't have won that game, if not by the two or an even greater margin, because as everyone, every sports person knows at any level, when you're in a game and you're completely on top and the other and the opponent is kind of demoralised. They know, you know, you're at home, um, for, for those of us, I guess, or for professional athletes, who know what it's like playing in front of a huge 85,000 partisan home crowd, and you know that the opponent's not dealing with that well, and you're playing well, and your team is on the absolute top of the game, and you're leading and, and look likely to increase that. I mean, we missed so many chances that night. It was unbelievable. Um, there's just no way in the world that Iran was coming back in that game until it was interrupted by a person running out and jumping on the net. And sadly, what happened then is that interrupted the momentum of the game. And football is all about momentum. It's up and down and all over the place. But in a game where you're dominant, it's only going one way. And it's extremely difficult to overcome. You know, when an opponent has more quality and, and we did have more quality, you know, even, I mean, oh, I have many Iranian friends, and in fact, many of the refugees who I advocate now for who are offshore in PNG or are here in Australia who I've met, many of them Iranians, and the first thing they say to me is, you know, I was five or six years old and I was in school and, you know, and we all stopped and that day of school was about anticipating and watching that game. We watched Mm. it, you know, in our under six, you know, in our our kind of first or, or second grade class. And they knew they were gone. They say, we still don't know how we got through. But that momentum killed it. It killed ours. It allowed them to refocus, to reorganise. Mm. And sadly, when we came back out after that, um, you know, in, in a minute break, um, the, the momentum had changed. The game had changed. And we didn't deal with that well enough 
to be able to you know, get the win that was necessary. Yeah, and it was the serial pest Peter Hoare who came, of course, uh, came out into the field and damaged um, the Iranian net, as it were, and they scored in the 75th, 79th minute. And yet, you know, despite being undefeated throughout the entire qualifying campaign, um, Australia had again failed to qualify. And Les Murray and Johnny Warren, two guys who you would come to know very, very well, particularly post-career Fozzie, who had long campaigned for the game to get the respect it deserved in this country, they were distraught in commentary. I mean, I think Johnny Warren openly wept on air. Yeah, he did. Yeah, they knew a number of things. But firstly, that you know the timing was great. You know, it had captured the uh, attention uh, and the interest of Australia, and they knew that that game had been carried around Australia. I think there might have been like six or eight million Australians watched it in in homes, clubs, and pubs. So it, you know, they knew that it was a huge moment for the game. Uh, they also knew that that was a really quality team. I mean, you know, take me out, but you had, you know, we had teammates there who were some of the greatest players we've ever had. I mean, Paul Ocon was injured at the time, actually, but would have been available for France had we got through. But, you know, you had Ned Zelich and Mark Viduka and you had Harry and, and uh, Stan Lazaridis left back. You had Robbie Slater and, you know, you had two legends of the game, uh, you know, Arnold and, uh, and Farina, uh, you know, who were... Uh, on the bench or out, you know, you had uh, Craig Moore at the back, you know, we had Ivanovic uh, on the bench, you had Alex Tobin, um, you know, that was a fantastic team. It was a really great generation. Of course, you had the Vidmar boys as well. It's really quite mm. amazing. So how we didn't get through is, uh, you know, something that we still shake our heads today. But I must say, I think a lot of us, certainly I do, console ourselves with the sense that the game actually wasn't ready to get through because we still had some pretty shoddy administration at that time. And post-97, you know, we were then able, through our, largely through our Players Association and the advocacy that I was always involved in there, we were able to, you know, bring a lot of pressure to bear, change that administration, you know, get change that from kind of Soccer Australia to Football Federation Australia and move the game forward a, lot, a long way. So by the time we made it in 05, the game was actually ready to make it. I was going to ask you about that off-field stuff, particularly, Fozzie, that year. I mean, the willingness for you to speak up for what you believe in and what you feel is right is clearly evident now. But it was evident back then as well. The Confederations Cup was that year, Saudi Arabia. I think you played every minute of that tournament, but you also played a big role in a, in a pay dispute at the time. And despite being relatively new to the team, you know, was it your belief the players weren't getting a big enough slice of the prize money? I'd been a um, delegate uh, on the board of the Players' Union for a few years by that time, and, and I was committed to the game through the players' cause. So for me, and that continues today, I'm still a trustee to the uh, Professional Football Association because I'm a former chairman and, and even I was CEO for a while when they were in a bit of trouble. But, um, you know, to me it's always been about building the game uh, through the well-being and the conditions of the players. Uh, and therefore, that that really played into what happened at that stage. So the outgoing coach, who sadly has passed away now, um, Eddie Thompson, we we qualified for what was the first ever Confederations Cup. So we didn't really know what it was about. We didn't know what was happening. And as he was leaving the post, he said to a few of us, look, there's some prize money on this, and the governing body is kind of trying to hide that from you. And we knew immediately that that was going to be a key opportunity, a leverage point to bring the governing body to the table to talk about a whole wide range of conditions for the game. And we've been trying to do that for quite some time. Sadly, what fans 
sometimes don't, but really need to understand is that when when the relationship between players and and a, and the game itself is not ideal, then players can only really use these major leverage points, which tend to be the most important moments, you know, in the big tournaments. Um, that's the sad part, because we go into we went into the Confederations Cup in the first you know, major tournaments in '74 of the males that Australia had been in, and we of course we were desperate to play, but equally I felt strongly, as did some others, that this was a moment that we had to really, uh, you know, put a put a line um, for the game to say this is the way that players are going to have to be treated in future. And by treating players appropriately, we can then acquire more talent, we can produce better talent, we can grow the game, and that's in the interests of the game. That's what it's all about. Mm. So yeah, we had a we threatened a strike, um, and that was you know as you'd expect that was you know testing times for the squad itself. You know, we had some great legends of the game there, and and you know, I'd only been in there every year, but I was you know, uh, in front of the group, you know, pretty constantly saying, "Okay, guys, this is not about you. This is actually about the future of the game, and you need to understand that the the the, the players that are going to come after us need better conditions." And be- before I got here, I've played with this whole group of players whose knees are gone, their backs are gone, they can't walk. They're going to have to have hip replacement surgeries because they've had no physios. They've had, you know, they've had no medical care. There's no well-being support. We've got, you know, so all of these things. And this is the moment when we have to put all these principles into place. And you're going to have to take responsibility for that. And of course, some right, you know, some fair enough are saying, well, you know, I just want to play in this tournament. You know, this is important to me and my career. And yeah. and a bunch of us just kept. You know, and thankfully we won the argument by saying this is actually not about you. And I and I said, look, I, I don't know how many caps I had at that time. I might have had like ten. And I said, I've got ten caps. You know, I would love to have sixty, but I'm prepared to trade the other fifty for the players that are going to come after me, um, male and female. But at some point, we're going to have to create a good, strong, robust framework and relationship with the game, and the players are going to have to lead. The, the the commercial and institutional well-being of the sport because you know the, the administration is you know is is deeply flawed so we have to step forward here and this is the start of that and after that we went on to then uh, develop uh, the new model for the A League and and the W League which was called the ATL we invested um, you know three four hundred thousand dollars in that that was the spur to the new professional game so it was the really the beginning of uh, an era of players in our game necessarily, quite sadly, but necessarily having to actually take leadership in in the progress of the sport itself. And by the way, that was due to a whole heap of people. That's, that's, not, that's not just me, but I certainly felt very strongly about it. Yeah. Your manager in the early years at the Socceroos, of course, was Terry Venables, and he would be your link to English football, I think, at the age of 28 via the so-called Socceroos experiment when he briefly served as chairman of Portsmouth. So yourself, Johnny Aloisi, Hamilton Thorpe, I think there were a couple others as well, all arrived there in the summer of 1997. This must have been interesting times, Craig. Oh, well, really was. <laughs> it really was. Um, yeah, Terry he was a quite brilliant manager. And I must say, he was very supportive during that time in Saudi Arabia of the of the proposed or the threatened strike because he was a former chairman of his own players association in England. And I had a good relationship with him only in the sense that, you know, I understood his his system. We got on quite well. 
And so he came to me during that strike and said, look, what the fuck, what's going on? And, um, and I said to him, sorry, Terry, look, this needs to happen. This is for the broader game here. It's not just about this group or this tournament. And I remember well him saying it was reported uh, actually to the contrary, but he actually said to me, listen, okay, I fully understand. I'm an ex-chair of players anyway, and I fully support what you're doing, but just do me one favour, try and try and get it across the line and play, will you? And I said, well, of course we're going to try and play. You know, we, we, you know, we're desperate to play in this tournament. Of course, we end up making the final in that tournament. And that was the beauty, you see, that we were able to fight for what was right for the game and for the profession, and the profession is the game, yeah. Um, we were able to fight what was right and perform brilliantly on the field and that, that was an important strike as well to be able to say to the entire game you know you can stand up for what's right and perform they're not mutually exclusive and of course um, athletes all around the world now are doing that in, in many respects particularly socially so when Terry asked me to come to Portsmouth and he'd newly taken over I think as you said as chair it seemed like a great opportunity because he already knew John Aloisi and I the way that we played. And as you're, you're right, he also found some other Australian players um, from different NSL clubs, um, you know, I think by watching them when he was here. Um, but he came to Johnny A and I and said, look, I'm building this new project with this club Portsmouth. They are in the championship or the first division, whatever it's called at that time. And, this had happened a number of times. They, you know, people had come in with these clubs, brought in a huge amount of new investment, got promotion, you know, got them up and built it, and then um, you know, built them in, built their investment, and built them into a you know a, a significant Premier League team. And so it seemed like a wonderful project. Um, of course, like many things, you know, that kind of happened around Terry. Um, you know, there was the positive football side and then it also came with, you know, some other issues um, and baggage. So it ended up as a bit of a mess at Portsmouth because um, they ended up selling players, you know, and so what we were promised or, or kind of sold and never ended up eventuating. And that was the sad part. Is it true that Terry commissioned uh, Craig an inflatable version of himself to be the club's mascot that season? <laughs> Is it? Oh, I don't know. I believe I that's true. I don't know how much they spent on that. That might have been a big expense. Oh, I can't. I can't remember that. That's funny. That would have been funny. I, I, I would remember really having a good little laugh at that if it had happened. Uh, so no, look, I don't know. But it, it ended up a bit of a mess. We ended up, um, you know, really having to fight that year. You know, the top scorer. Uh, of the season before ended up being sold. So in other words, instead of bringing in huge investment and new, like we were, we were told, you know, Terry Sheringham was going to come and, you know, cause he had wonderful ties at Tottenham. Now, whether this was down to Terry or otherwise doesn't really matter. The point was it just didn't eventuate. Um, mm. I don't know what the machinations were, but you know, the, the, you know, so these, these types of players never ended up coming. And so um, we ended up, uh, they sold a couple of key players to then get in finance rather than spending. They were actually consolidating. And we ended up with a less team than the year before. And the team the year before had struggled. So it was a tough year. But it was, uh, uh, you know, it was, it, it, I have fond memories of it simply because of the people in Portsmouth and the fans. You know, they were one of the most incredibly passionate football fans in England. They're renowned for that. And, uh, you know, they were completely behind the club they were they, you know there was scandal going on after scandal and yet they just were there every day of training they would turn up in the thousands they backed the players to the heels and it really gave me a, a sense of 
the deep passion and com- community connection to clubs that is prevalent uh, all around the world, but particularly in England. You followed Terry, though, didn't you, to Crystal Palace in 98, and there was some more off-field troubles there, as it turned out. But it was your longest mm. stint at any one club, I think, in terms of games played. You featured 52 times, even captain the London-based club as well. Yeah, I did. And um, sadly, that, that look, there was a, a lot of it happening at that time. So as football fans would remember, kind of the late 90s was the bankruptcy era and the administration mm. era. And they ended up having to put in, that was the start of, um, some of the financial fair play rules that came in with UEFA later and so on. That era was largely about fans um, taking over with their fan trusts, having to save many clubs in England at that time, particularly in the Football League and the Championship. Because teams were overspending to try and either overspending to try and make the Premier League or those that dropped out of the Premier League were overspending to try and get back even though they had a balloon payment. So financially, it was a time of great upheaval in English football. And sadly, yeah, um, Crystal Palace was another example. You know, I mean, they there was two, but it was still some wonderful memories and great people. Again, you know, Selhurst Park is, is a fabulous ground. You know, they're doing yeah. well in the Premier League now in recent years. It was a club with a strong Australian history. You know, Kevin Muscat was former captain, as was I, Craig Moore was a captain. Tony Popovich was a was a renowned captain there. I think Nicky Carl captain. Uh Carl Viet was there. And of course the the, the greatest Australian captain of of uh, the Eagles was um Mila Yedinik, who uh you know just did a fabulous job over quite a number of years. So it had it was a club with a very strong Australian presence. So uh, and it, it was a it was a, a great home for a period of time and, and I remember those people very fondly. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, of course, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. After this break, Craig Foster's move to the media, the commentary box, and that thrilling November night against Uruguay in 2005. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with the former Socceroo turned award-winning broadcaster turned refugee advocate Craig Foster. Well, Fozzie, you retire at 34 and you start your media career as an analyst pretty much straight away and a commentator for Channel 7 and SBS's weekly football program On The Ball. Was it a culture shock jumping to the other side of the fence because it appeared to be a natural transition? Uh, I wouldn't say it was a culture shock. Um, it seemed um, like an, a pretty natural path. Um, and Channel C7, as it was at the time, which was their pay television arm, mm. you know, were kind of saying, look, you know, come along and talk. And and subsequently, you know, after almost two decades in the media, you know, I know that when players are asked to talk on camera and demonstrate an ability to, you know, formulate an argument and, and think a little bit differently and articulate uh, the game in different ways, then, of course, you know, it immediately stands out. And you'll often say, well, if they, you know, that person needs to be here. You know, that's that's good talent, as they, as they, uh, as they often say. So uh, Les and Johnny needed someone on the 2002 World Cup. Back in 2002, Channel 9 actually had the rights. And 
Of course, you know, one, they expected Australia to uh, qualify or they're hoping that was going to happen. And we didn't qualify because of the financial state of the game was one of the great scandals that ended up seeing the administration overhaul. And Channel 9 said, look, you know, we don't need this whole tournament anymore. Um, so we'll just keep the business end. And we've got whatever it was. It might have been 40 plus games that we'll give to SBS, you know, for a tippens. So SBS came in quite late, I think only a few months before, and said, look, we'll be happy to, to broadcast that. So they had to put a team together quickly, and Johnny and Les came to me and said, look, you've been on a few times, you know, we like working with you, and, you know, would you consider doing it? So I thought, okay, that sounds like great fun with these two. So we had a, a, a magic month. And it was also a great insight into the way that SBS worked and mm. started to bring me inside the family, if you like, because we gelled immediately culturally and, and you know, with our values. So I remember the first day of a kind of meeting, probably a couple of weeks before the tournament, uh, Les said, OK, well, the first thing you need to do is go upstairs and speak to the Russian radio, speak to uh, Korean radio, speak to uh, others. And here's all of the lists of the teams and you need to go and get... A phonetic spelling of, um, you know, uh, indigenous speakers, language speakers, so that you can pronounce all of the names appropriately on air. And that's going to be your cheat guide for the whole World Cup. And I thought, how good is that? And he said, because that's what's important to us here. You know, when we're showing Korea, we're not just showing Korea against Australia for our own purposes. We talk about Korea. We, talk, we, we want to talk about the Australian-Korean community. We want to talk about Korean culture, what they're contributing to our country here. And I thought, oh, this is just fantastic. You know, this is not just football. I'm at home here. I just thought it was absolutely wonderful. I remember those meetings and I thought, oh, I'm in fantasy land because this is now, you know, we're, we're talking about the culture of the game. We're talking about the, the beauty of the game. You know, it's not just about the 22 men of that tournament, but the 22 players taking the field. It's about, you know, the way the different teams play. It's about how Koreans approach the game, what's the difference in Japan, what the cultural history of those is, which includes, you know, challenging discussions. And so that World Cup was just an absolute dream. And I sat with Les and Goni, um, well, a lot of the time the teams would kind of, um, you know, they would do a couple of games and then I would come on um, with Andrew Osadi or Cole Patterson and we would do it like team A and B, but we would cross over. And so, you know, I'd go in a couple of hours early and watch it with them and just see how they worked. And sitting in halftime and after games in their lounge there where they'd be smoking away like chimneys and, you know, just swearing away at the game and cursing everyone and just having you know, talking about everything but football as well as football, but through football, you know, I was just like a kid in a candy shop. I thought, this is just wonderful. It was a fantastic month. And after that month, because the uh, Japan-Korea World Cup was in our time zone, it was like 5 p.m., 6 p.m. games, the ratings were through the roof. And they said, oh, look, we want to capitalise on this. And we're thinking about doing a six-hour show on a Sunday from midday to 6 p.m. Would you be interested and that meant I would have to retire. And I said, okay, where do I sign? So we sat for years talking about football for six hours. Well, not six hours straight, but the show was six hours. And so we would speak hours on end of football. I mean, what a marvellous thing to do that was. 
It's hard to imagine you having a, a better pair as mentors in the early days of your journey into the media. Amazing. And sadly, neither of them are obviously with us anymore, but it sounds like they left a real mark on you. And I think even after Les uh, passed away, did you change your diet even in the, in the wake of that? Yeah, I did in part because of that. You know, I Johnny, I was with him only a couple of years then before sadly passed away. I knew him previously, but not as close personal friends. So we were, you know, we worked professionally, um, but I spent a lot more time outside with Les than I did with Johnny. Um, and of course, the, then subsequently for many, many years as really close personal friends. And so we spent, you know, you know, almost every day together. Whilst I was never in office at, uh, at SBS, I wasn't a full-time journalist. I was just, I wasn't interested in that. I just wanted to cover football. Um, I would be in, in and out all week long, um, just lunching and talking and, and, and chatting football. So I lived through Les's illness more than I did with Johnny. And, and throughout that, uh, he had been advised by his uh, specialist, actually, to give up red meat um, because uh, it was detrimental to, um, to stemming the growth of his cancer. Uh, and that, you know, I'd already been thinking about it at that time for a number of reasons, um, animals, environmental and other, but that was the trigger where I said, okay, I did a bit more research and said, okay, vegetarianism is for me uh, and for my family, which it has been now for, uh, you know, for quite a, a lot of years. You've only got to mention the word Uruguay to any Australian football fan and the memories come flooding back to that magical November night in Sydney in 2005. You were obviously in the commentary box alongside Simon Hill on the night. I mean, what does that night stir inside you now, 15 years on? If 97 was uh, was so painful, what does this bring back? Mm, you know, I have mixed uh, feelings about it now because I knew at the time and the reason why I was so nervous during the commentary, not nervous to do my job, um, not that I couldn't find words, uh, except when we <laughs> we actually uh, when John Aloisi, um you know scored penalty uh, when words were very difficult to come through the tears, but just nervous to my core because I knew it was so important for the game. So going back to '97 and and many times previously to that, you know when I was a young kid, I watched in 1981 uh, for the '82 World Cup. You know when Australia was trying to qualify. And, you know, um, and they played Israel and Scotland and, you know, in, and then in, uh, uh, in 85, you know, so all of these. And then in 93, uh, when they played against Argentina. So I'd watched all these games as a young whippersnapper, you know, and so I knew the pain and then I'd lived the pain. <laughs> mm. And then I'd been with SBS and I understood the pain. I understood the vicarious pain of football fans, which I hadn't as a player and as a broadcaster and with an organisation that genuinely felt like, you know, we, we used to talk at SBS about the mission. That's what Les would talk about. And that gives you a sense of, you know, he, he genuinely believed that, it, that he and, and Johnny and all of us in SBS was, was, were evangelists for something Australia needed. Whereas people often thought, oh, they're just crazy dudes who love the game of football. But it actually never was that. It, what it was was, yes, that's true. We were and are crazy people who love football. But we actually believe that the multicultural, inclusive nature of the game is um, something that is to the benefit 
of not just the world of Australia and to the world more more broadly, and that uh, you know the the understanding the uh, diversity of cultures that are always brought together through football. You know, there's sensitivities of, you know, globalism that it gives us this concept of shared humanity. All of these things come through meeting people from other cultures, and that's what football is all about. So that had become part of the journey. And so all of this was rolled into one, you know, pretty awful concoction by the time we hit that night in November 05. So much was riding on this game. You know, the Lowys had, had now... Uh, turned the game around in this, and we'd fought for that for many years through the Players Association and through the Players Movement and others. So now we had a new momentum in the game. We had was Hiddink on board, which was, which was a, a bold decision by Frank and an important one. We had someone with experience to get us through at that level, which is really not, difficult, uh, not easy against a team like Uruguay, who had a fantastic generation at that time. So it was an incredible night in the history of the game and you know it's wonderful to look back and remember the sheer ecstasy of making it through and because SBS you know um, all, a lot of us in the game but particularly SBS were very connected to every community in the country of football so you know the Italian community or the Turkish community or the Syrian community you know all the football communities are connected in through us and they're always in, in constant contact so you know, when that occurred, what I recall really clearly is two things. One is knowing and getting all the messages of all the parties happening everywhere around the country, you know, in the Italian communities and Croatian communities, which which are Australian communities, but all of these cultural um, um, areas who had grown up into Australian culture and life through football now had had their own new country make the World Cup of the game that they loved and brought this passion with them from their old country. And it was an incredible moment of bringing all of this tapestry of culture together through a sporting team. It was amazing. And the other thing I remember well is leaving the stadium and a, a, an older Indonesian man came up in tears and just said, look, you know, and now I said, look, this is, incredible you know and everyone was just crying all over the place and he said you know Craig and Les this is the first time that I feel Australian and I said what do you mean and well how long have you been here and, I, and he said oh, I've been here you know 30 years but you know this country has never really embraced the game that I love you know I'm Indonesian and uh, and for the first time I've seen a, a, a team of an Australian team based of so much cultural diversity play in and represent us in the game that I love. And he said, this is the first time that I genuinely feel that I'm really a part of this country. And, you know, I was really struck by that. And so we kind of hugged and moved on and everyone was just elated. And it was all of those types of stories coming out. People were very reflective on their on the their own journeys through the game. And that's the beauty that the players bring. You know, and even on air, I was always conscious to bring it back to the players and say, look, you know, we're, we're just mouthpiece here, but it's the people on the field who are having to perform. And what they did tonight is extraordinary. And the joy that they can bring to people is really is, is quite amazing. The reason I say mixed feelings, though, is because sitting in 2020 and seeing where the game is at now, you know, 15 years later, 
we're facing again some of the challenges that we were facing then. And that's mm. what concerns me. So whilst it was wonderful, I just think that football tends to not learn our lessons well. And in some respects, we're having to now overcome similar challenges that, you know, I've been a part of fighting against too many times. Yeah. Yeah. On the night itself, it's it's 1-0. Bresciano scores, obviously, 1-1 on aggregate after regulation time, then extra time. That doesn't break the deadlock. It goes to penalties, and it's obviously incredibly intense. I mean, how difficult was it to stay at least close to impartial, or when did you realise there was absolutely zero chance of that happening? Um, I think impartiality... Look, I, I, I always understood... And we knew at SBS that impartiality is important. Um, when there is, when the Socceroos were playing, I would explain to Les and say, I think people can understand, though, that as an ex-player, that I can be partial as long as I'm fair. Okay, so um, you know, I could be support, and this is what I sold to Les anyway. But the way I used to, otherwise, I couldn't have done it. I used to say to him, Les, I cannot sit there and just t- treat the two teams in the same way. You can't ask me as an ex soccerer to sit on this World Cup qualifier and pretend that I don't care. Yeah. So, of course, I'm going to care. But if we mess something up or we give what should have been a penalty, then what, I, what, what being impartial means is saying that that should have been a penalty for the other team. That's, in, that's in my view, um, where people go wrong is they become blind to one team, and that's wrong. And, and I don't believe we ever did that. Um, but there was a moment in that game, I recall, when um, I think the, the, the an opposing coach got up and threw the ball at us or threw it away or something. And, you know, and I think that was perhaps a moment when, uh, you know, I, I, I went from ex-player broadcaster to just ex-player, you know. And... But when it came to the um, penalties, yeah, look, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to say I just completely lost. I just completely lost every everything I had. I, I just was, I was just far too emotional. I couldn't count the penalties. I was relying on. In fact, at one point, I think Simon said, "Oh, look, you know, if we get this, we're through." And I said, "Are yeah. you sure? <laughs> like, you know, what is the score here? You know, it was just too much. It was just it, it physically was too much for me. I was well, never. I was an on-air uh, um, analyst, if you like, you know, and and loved debating issues around the game, uh, in the game. I was never a co-commentator as a profession. I didn't see it my profession, um, but. Uh, Les always kind of made me do it, if you like, um, and convinced me that it was necessary. So I uh, tried to prepare for that uh, game, but um, a part of me, for the first time ever, was saying, don't over-prepare because I didn't want to jinx it. So I had all these ridiculous emotions that any ex-sports person can well understand. But the intensity of that moment was the greatest that I'd ever experienced anything. It was far greater than playing in a game in 97 or anything like that. Being a player, players can train ourselves psychologically to deal with almost any level of pressure and they do it through process or whatever whatever mechanisms they have. Otherwise, we couldn't perform. But being off camera, I found always much more difficult. That's why I was constantly in these big moments, you know, turning into a blubbering mess. Yeah. Because the players deal with it, but off off camera, you know the consequences. You you're in touch with the fans. You know the people who are working to make it happen. 
you know, there's all of these this much broader context around it. Yeah. Uh, and you also, I in the, on that night, you know, many of them were my teammates, my ex-teammates. And so even at the most basic level, I just wanted them to get through. I wanted to see them in a World Cup. I wanted it for them. Mm. And so when it happened, um, Simon, uh, who's a quite brilliant commentator, Simon Hill, uh, had, of course, his script well prepared. You know, if we didn't get through or if we did, he knew exactly what he was going to say. In part, that got ruined. He, you know, he had a framework. <laughs> and so as soon as it went in, you know, his job was to deliver, you know, this, because he knew it was going to be on every DVD and uh, <laughs> you know, on, every, on YouTube and every highlight reel for eternity. You know, I hadn't thought that far. You know, I just thought we need to get this penalty in. I didn't care where it was going to go. And then what happened is, you know, he then tried to professionally deliver some sort of lines. And all I was interested in was just screaming my head off and just celebrating in tears with, with staff. And see, every, there's a small commentator booth. And I was in such distress that as we were taking the penalties, I was at the back of the commentator booth kind of peering over like a child. It was almost like I didn't want to watch. I was just kind of trying to see just enough. And then when it happened, all of our people, all of our staff burst into tears and and cheering and so on. Everyone was crying. So the only one who wasn't crying was Simon because he was trying to do it. Paul guy was trying to deliver his script, as you guys well know, being in and, broadcasting and radio. So and in you the was, end, I think... You were squeezing was, his arm so hard, the circulation probably got cut off as well. Well, I wasn't near him because I was. Everyone was jumping on me. All, all the staff. You know, you, you understand these people. You know, the reason that SBS was and still is loved by the football community is because they know that everyone at SBS loves it as much as them. You know, it's not a question of a profession. It never was. And I, and I knew that I was never going to just sit on air like Les. It was his whole life. It wasn't mine. Um, I felt there was a job needed to be done for Australian football, um, and and I thought I had. I had the willingness and I had some capabilities to do that, but I was never going to last forever. Um, so it was, and all of the people who are working behind are football fans. Like if you walk into the SBS um, sport department, now it's, there's some cycling stuff. <laughs> it used to be like every shirt from everywhere in the world and moments and posters and, you know, like their people are crazy for the game. And, you know, you'd have Italians and, and uh, you know, Serbs and, uh, you know, you'd have um, Chinese. And you'd have Indonesians and and Greeks and and Hungarians like Les. That's what it was. And so all these people were in this room in this historic moment after 32 years. Like it's not difficult to imagine, you know, the, the scenes. And so we just completely lost our mind. I completely lost my mind on camera. Uh, and it's 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 not good. You know, it's not professional. But in the end, I think people kind of resonated with it because that actually is football. And the way I carried on like a goose is actually exactly what they were doing in their living rooms. Um, I probably shouldn't have done it, but um, it worked. Oh, if ever there was a night it was acceptable, it was certainly this one. I'm glad you painted that picture as well, Foz, because <laughs> I've always thought when your good mate, your former teammate, Johnny Aloisi, put us through from the spot and, uh, and tore off, uh, you know, ripped his shirt off, waving yeah. it above his head, you were actually doing the exact same thing in the commentary <laughs> box. I wasn't far wrong. Exactly. It was totally right. Um, there was more craziness in the commentary box than there. You know, so everything that people were doing at home um, and everything that they were doing in the stadium, that's what we were doing. Les knew that was going to happen because he took me aside two days before lunch and he said, look, 
Um, the only thing I ask is, I know it's going to be difficult. This is going to be very difficult for you. But um, all I ask is that, you know, whatever happens, you know, um, try and, uh, you know, be um, nonpartisan to, to the greatest extent that you can. And secondly, um, just don't lose, don't lose everything, you know. Um, but I didn't lose everything until we actually proved. So as far as I'm concerned, that was fair enough. <laughs> Absolutely. We're talking to Craig Foster on This Is Your Sporting Life thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Life. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So we'll be back shortly with Fozzie, who has set, of course, his trademark leadership qualities to harness how sport contributes to the world, to human rights and social justice. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Football icon Craig Foster is our guest today. Well, Craig, you were part of the furniture there at SBS for the best part of 18 years as a commentator, a newsreader, and almost everything in between. But you farewelled the network in June. Why was that? Um, Because... For a number of reasons, but one is because there's a lot of social issues that I um, feel I need to be involved in. And one of those, as you've mentioned previously on this, is the refugee sector. And I can't do that to the requisite level um, if I'm working for a government organisation. It is a government uh, broadcaster. And so in recent years, that's been something of a challenge. And you know, there's been an ongoing negotiation, really. Um, and a lot of sensitivity since way back um, from the Safe Hakeem campaign. Uh, and, you know, I knew in order to work in the human rights space in a, in a stronger capacity, which in my view is apolitical in the sense that, um, you know, human rights are objective, they're universal. And so, for instance, let's take refugees. Refugees uh, have... Uh, objective human rights under international instruments. Nevertheless, whilst being apolitical, it is deeply politicised, and that means it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And so, in order to make really substantive change that's necessary after so many years, um, I knew that I had to do more, and uh, and I couldn't do that in a range of sectors. I mean, that included climate and others, uh, without committing a more time. Uh, and also without having some more autonomy. So it, it was time. Um, you know, there's a wonderful team there at SBS. Uh, Lucy Zelich is is immensely capable of leading that now. You know, Lucy has is having uh, you know is an incredible practitioner, uh, deeply passionate about the game. She's everything that SBS stands for. She's every bit as brilliant uh, as Les was at the same time in his career. 
we're very proud of her because now, you know, one of the most prominent... So Lucy kind of has to carry her role as the host and my role as the opinion shaper now. And she's doing that quite brilliantly because she's so capable. So I feel as though I've left her and the team, you know, in a strong position. Um, but, you know, I'll always be around. So, you know, whether I'm doing things for other broadcasters uh, on, on social issues, which I do from time to time, or on coming World Cups with SBS or others, um, you know, it'll always be there. It's just that at this particular point in time, SBS also has less football than we used to have. So it doesn't make as much sense um, to stay there and it gives me some time to try and make some important social change, which includes helping sport be a bit more active in this area. Hakeem Al-Arabi was arrested at Bangkok Airport November 27, 2018, based on an Interpol warrant issued by Bahrain. Now, the footballer had fled his home country years earlier, of course. He was accused of vandalising a police station despite playing in a televised football match at the time of the attack. Nevertheless, he was arrested. He was tortured. He'd successfully sought asylum in Australia four years before that, but it was a trip to Thailand, supposed to be a honeymoon, of course. He was instead put behind bars with the real prospect of being extradited to Bahrain, which would have been a gruesome outcome. Fozzie, you're a refugee ambassador for Amnesty, but can you remember or pinpoint the moment where it struck you that I just have to help this man? I can, because I had to sit down with my wife and talk it through. So a few people had got in touch and I didn't know about him for whatever reason. I hadn't, I wasn't that aware. I might have read it, but didn't really resonate a couple of years earlier when Hakeem had spoke out against one of the members of the royal family in the FIFA race. I read other commentary from particularly one of the more prominent uh, activists in London, Syed Awadeh, but I hadn't read once Hakeem. So anyway, he got himself in trouble largely because of that in what happened, what uh, turned out to be several years later when he went to Thailand. And I quickly started to have a look at the case um, and looked at, you know, what he'd been incarcerated for, the fact he'd been tortured, how he came here. He was still on a protected visa, so he was a refugee at the time. He was a Muslim kid. And so all of those uh, issues meant and started to to, um, give me the understanding that he was in even deeper trouble than what we thought. So there was probably three of them. Um, one is that he was a refugee. And of course, you know, Australia still is really struggling to move forward in respect of, you know, human rights and appropriate treatment uh, and narrative and, and dialogue around refugees and asylum seekers for, for quite a number of decades now. Um, second, so I knew that, okay, that means that a section of the population not going to be sympathetic. Uh, secondly, I don't know if I can count on the Australian government to, to do what they need to do for him. Um, because the refugees are deeply politicised. Secondly, um, is the fact that he's a Muslim. And, you know, I sit on the Australian Multicultural Council, and, of course, multiculturalism is a big part of football and, and you know, my life uh, view, my worldview. Uh, and therefore, I thought, well, hang on a minute. I'd seen the uh, research, you know, that talks about the way that, you know, Muslim Australia has been demonised, which they certainly have. Uh, and he's a Muslim kid who's in trouble, and we need Australia to help. And so, you know, how how are we going to... Who's going to frame that in a way that's going to, you know, enable all of us to see him as what he is? Not a refugee, not a Muslim, but just a kid, which is what we should see everyone as, right? And, and I knew that my uh, kind of media skills, if you like, um, you know, would be helpful there. And the third one was because 
the people who were supposed to advocate for him under their human rights policy was FIFA. And by extension, AFC, which was the, um, the the president of which is that member of the royal family who Hakeem had criticised, rightly, um, and thirdly was FFA. So mm. understanding football politics as well as anyone having been, you know, uh, heavily involved in the player movement for 20 years, uh, I knew that that wasn't going to happen. So he had three factors or strikes against him. And so I remember as I read all this, then I read about Bahrain, human rights issues in Bahrain, which are very significant, lack of rule of law, uh, arbitrary detain, uh, detention, um, torture, uh, and, and the fact that many of the judges are members of the royal family. And I thought, okay, he needs help. Well, who's going to help him? If I don't do it, who's going to do it? You know, I've got a public platform. He's a footballer. Therefore, I know that I can galvanise the football community, if not sport. And I remember well sitting my wife down and having that discussion because that, you know, I had to say to her, look, we, we're going to have to throw everything up in the air here because this is he's a refugee. That's a sensitive political issue. That means that we the, the sensitivity level at SBS could well throughout. I'm, I'm going to I may have to attack the Australian government in order to get him out. And that means that that's going to have sensitivities at SBS. So it's unlikely we're going to be there. Um, so we have to put that on the table. That may not go. And, and you know, and she said, but that's what you love doing. And, and um, you know, and we, we had to sort through. And the second thing is we knew that there was some other risk and security risks and things which Amnesty had identified. And that, like many issues in social media today, um, you know, there were, it wasn't just the Bahrain government. They were using other organisations to advocate for them and attack publicly and all these things. So you you know that you're actually walking into a bit of a spider's web. Um, and we had, you know, we had to make the decision. And um, it was a family decision. Uh, you know, I was clear, but of course I, you know, I, I had to, you know, my wife and I had to talk it through together because we knew that, you know, everything could come to an end. But we knew that I'd met his wife by that time. And uh, I, I explained to Lara how much trouble Hakeem was in and that, and she understood that with this life experience I'd had, including being in the players' union uh, as a leader, um, I understood FIFA and I understood FFA and AFC and I'd, I'd sat on numerous government councils and I worked in the media. So no one was going to have the mixed skills. And we felt strongly enough about it to just say, well, Look, let's go. Whatever happens, happens. We just have to, um, you know, we have to put everything in. And from that moment, that was, uh, I decided to go to Bangkok and leave the family here. And there were some security issues around that, so it was really a difficult decision. But once, once, once we'd made that decision, that was it. It was on Fiona and and there was no way in the world that we weren't going to get him back. Or if we hadn't, you know, I'd still be fighting now. You know, we simply, I simply decided that we had to put everything on the line, and that meant all our relationships and all my relationships as well. You know, and it's not easy to do because, and I see now in advocacy and so on that, um, you know, it's difficult because society doesn't really work that way. You know, we all want to do good. We all want to do. We all want to see, you know, the refugees released. You know, all, most Australians would think that it's wrong, okay? But how much risk are we personally prepared to take to make that happen? You know, in order to really actually get them out, it's going to take significant advocacy, and that means putting yourself on the line. And to do that is going to affect your employment. It's going to affect your business. And also, and for athletes, you know, perhaps your sponsor's not comfortable with it. So, you know, there's real... Sadly, that's the way society works, as I've learned. You know, there are costs very significant costs to actually standing up for human beings. 
And that's one of the things that really irks me is that we've built a society where we say, okay, um, if you're going to advocate for vulnerable people whose human basic human rights have been breached, we're going to now characterise you as um, you know uh, not appropriate for this area, or you know we don't feel comfortable with this, and mm. it's really quite amazing. You know, take the Uyghurs in China, for instance. You know, there's millions of them in, incarcerated. Um, it's a, it's one of the most egregious human rights abuses in the world right now, and yet too few governments and too few people are willing to talk about it because of the economic might of China. So this, you know, this is how the world works, but it's one of the parts of human society and human nature that is, is I think, dis- deeply disappointing. So I've never had trouble doing that. You know, I did it as a player. I was prepared to put my career at risk. Um, I did it for the Players Association. And then they were in trouble. I put SBS at risk. You know, I decided to go back and, and I was interim CEO for a while when they needed someone. And SBS said, look, we're going to have to stand you down while we do that. After I'd made the decision, and I said, okay, well, I've, I've given my word to the players. I'm going to do it, so I have to be there. And so that caused some difficulty. So if I believe that it's right, um, then, you know, I'm, I'm prepared to make whatever sacrifices are necessary. But I also, by this age, recognise the impact that has on my family. And that's why these days, when I was young, I would just do it. Whereas now... I understand that, you know, there's significant impact on my wife and my children. And so it's not easy for them. So, you know, that 77 days was very intense because they were stressed and everyone was stressed. And, you know, we didn't know where, you know, no one knew where it was going to end. We thought we were going to lose the kid's life. We thought we could, you know, very likely lose everything ourselves as well. And we didn't know where, what was going to happen. But, you know, that's, um, that's necessary. That's necessary. And it was necessary to do to, I was also hopeful at the time but by doing in the middle of it, once I was involved, I was already thinking, look, if we can get this kid out, maybe we can strike a blow and inspire some other athletes, whether in Australia or elsewhere, to understand that this is important to use our platform in this way. That's not just about staying on air for the rest of our lives, having a wonderful career and traveling the world or buying another investment apartment. It's about giving people who never had the chance that I had to do what we were able to do and we didn't do it alone you know my parents went and did all they 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 had thousands of kilometers of driving uh you know and making sacrifices for me to get where i got other people did coaches did you know all of us have had very significant support in our lives and there's multiple minority and vulnerable communities in Australia and elsewhere, who don't have that support. They don't have people to just stretch out a hand. And this kid was in need, and I thought it was an opportunity to just show that, well, you know what, life is about more than just, you know, another Logie. Yeah, yeah, and he was released February 11, 2019. It came when Bahrain withdrew its extradition order and Thailand set him free, of course. I think you call Akeem your little brother now, don't you? I just can't imagine... Uh, were you just engulfed by relief, exhaustion? And what sort of toll did it take on you? Yeah, it was both. It was both that. Um, but look, it took a far greater toll on Hakeem and on his wife, mm. which is why, you know, how, whatever time we were spending, uh, and it was, you know, all day and night because, you know, we were running a campaign that was global. So that meant, 
you know, half of it, if not more, was happening in the middle of the night, you know, in Europe and US as we were getting other sports on board and CNN and, you know, major international, you know, BBC World and others. So it was, you know, um, not only answering social media and trying to drive that with a team alongside, a surreptitious team, which I was able to put together throughout, uh, but, and by that I mean a, a Twitter team who we communicated uh, privately in order to be able to create a whole range of messages so that I didn't have to uh, do much of the... Um, most extreme advocacy, if you like, but also in the middle of the night just doing um, interviews and other things. But I had met Hakeem twice by the time he got out, and so I'd seen what had happened to him. I'd been in touch with his amazing wife, you know, very regularly. And so when it happened, we knew that it was likely to happen. You know, the ambassador called and said it would likely, it might happen within 72 hours. And then the foreign ministry called uh, on the second day, and said we think it's happening tonight. That was, I think, six or seven hours away, and I just recall sitting where I am now, which is in my living room in Sydney, uh, with my wife, and who was making coffees all afternoon and early evening, and just just not being able to say anything, just because we knew what was on the line. Uh, Bahrain had escalated everything. That was the moment, the greatest, after the shackles, the greatest pressure was on, you know, we knew that the social media was trending to an extraordinary degree, we'd created this storm, and storms are difficult to maintain, and I was very conscious that if it didn't happen then, um, we didn't know where it was going to land. And so when it happened, I was was just speechless, you know, really. Uh, People were calling and texting, and I got the first text from Thailand from a journalist that I met throughout and said, I think this is happening. And I couldn't tell him, but I said, what do you mean? What are you hearing? He said, well, apparently something, you know, he's been removed from prison. And, you know, we just, we just sat in and, and, and just all the energy and all of the tension just left. And we just, everyone just collapsed. Everyone who was involved in it. And it took some time after that to um, kind of just get any energy back. I think we packed six months of energy into, yeah, I was probably involved about, I would imagine at, a, at, a, at an intense level, probably 60 days. So it was probably six months or a year in, in two months. And mm. um, it was just immense relief. We, we, it, was at a, it was kind of early evening or mid-evening and we immediately booked a flight for late, like 11 p.m. that night down to Melbourne. He was coming in the next morning. Um, so that we could ensure that he was going to get through safely, so that we could provide some security at the airport. We didn't know who was, what was going to happen. We didn't know what Bahrain were going to do. They'd been forced to pull out by Thailand, by the Thai king, because of the pressure we'd put on. So, and you know, we knew that they, they had people in Australia and elsewhere. So, you know, it, it, the, the kind of tension continued on for a long time. Um, happily today, uh, he's in a new house. They've got a, uh, a new child, a son, Elia. Uh, you know, his wife is, is in a new career and they're building a new life, which is lovely. Oh, fantastic. That's what it's all about. And what about you yourself, Foz? You're 51. I mean, what, what's next for you? I think you had a crack at becoming chairman of the FFA. There's been other positions there uh, over the years up for grabs, coaching, politics, law. Mm-hmm. What's it going to be? Yeah, no, you know what? It's, a, it's actually a really tough question at the moment. The, 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 the true answer is I, I just don't quite know, um, because I've you know I've got this um, advocacy background in sport, um, you know the masters in sport, 
um, you know, the law degree. You know, I've, I, I enjoy the campaigning. I, I feel strongly about supporting social issues. Um, but I also know that making real and lasting change absolutely requires getting involved in some way in the political, if not political, discussion and discourse or even in the mechanisms in some way. Um, I'm, I'm an adjunct professor for Torrance University at the moment, which I'm enjoying, and I'm putting some courses together around these themes, around human rights and, and athletes using their platforms for social justice. So I'm enjoying that. Um, in, in the end, I just want to see a better, fairer world after COVID. You know, I think COVID should have been, I hope it's a big wake-up call for everyone, particularly in relation to the people that I'm in touch with every day who are vulnerable, who are homeless, uh, you know, who are demonised simply because they had to flee their own home. Um, and now that we've all had a taste of detention, we've all had a taste of, um, uh, you know, the, the fleeting nature of employment, um, that more people have been for the first time in their life unemployed. Um, and perhaps breaks down the stigma around those who, uh, you know, who are unemployed or homeless. More people have, 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 you know, are struggling with their loans. So we're all experiencing things that parts of society have experienced. Um, and, and in so doing, hopefully we're building with all of us more empathy. And so after this, the, real, the only question for the world really is how we're going to use this awful experience um, to better uh, create better discussions and better inform ourselves about what a better world looks like that's more fair, more equal, more inclusive. That absolutely has to happen. And so I'm committed to playing a role in that. Um, I've got four or five different roles at the moment, um, and I'm, I'm I, and I think over the next year or two they'll coalesce into a really clear picture as to how I can contribute to the maximum degree. Well, Craig Foster, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. I mean, you were an international sporting star whose passion for the game of football is unrivaled, but the fact you became one of Australia's most respected broadcasters and your conviction and relentless drive on the human rights fronts only served to enhance your legacy, no doubt about that. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Just jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you next week to celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.